Hey, welcome. We are the Motion Dance Collective, a screen dance production company that promotes the creation, presentation, and education of dance on film practice. And this episode, we will be talking with Roman Baca, who we have with us today. He's the director and choreographer for a dance company called Exit 12, and we'll specifically be picking his brain about the dance documentary he created um, called Exit 12. Um and all the work that he's doing within the industry. So first, for those of um, our listeners who don't know you and don't know your work, please just give us a really brief background about who you are. I was a classical ballet dancer uh, many, many years ago. I danced and trained in classical ballet, danced professionally for many years. After doing that, I didn't feel that dance was doing the social good that I wanted it to do in my own life. So I... naively transitioned into the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Served in the Marine Corps for eight years with a deployment to Fallujah, Iraq Iraq in Mm 2005-2006, which completely transformed my life, transformed my perspective about the world, about the military, about the impact the military has. So when I got back from Fallujah, I started investigating the military experience through the world of choreography and dance. Amazing. And I've been doing that for the past 12 years. Amazing. Thank you so much. So we always love to start our podcast off with this one question. Um, what does the term screen dance mean to you? Screen dance is is really interesting because I just finished um, a, a, a Master's of Fine Arts at the Trinity Laban Conservatory. Congratulations, Thanks. by the way. And we did a module specifically on merging technology and dance. Yeah. And one portion of the module was specifically film. Mm-hmm. Not only putting dance on film, but making film dance. And Love. I think screen dance is such an interesting term because of the diversity in which it is used. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw a lot of dance on film projects, which I think are great. But then you have projects like Exit 12, which are pushing the envelope and merging both the verite documentary style yep. and dance on film to make something new. Love it. So obviously we really wanted to talk to you because of Exit 12, the dance documentary. We all love it, first off. <laughs> We're big fans, right? (laughs) So um, we're very excited to talk to you about it today. Um, But we all actually saw it um, uh, at different times, just through the grapevine, I imagine. Um, And then obviously had the chance to just by chance meet you at a Christmas dinner. (laughs) So I actually... selfie while I was... uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This amazing selfie through of everyone at dinner. So um, Roman's wife, Lisa, works um, for one of the same dance companies, dance schools that I work for. So we, by chance, met at a Christmas dinner one night, and I introduced you to Omari, my partner. And... um, Obviously, the conversation from there just flowed because we knew that you were the creator of Exa 12 and we just talked about it for the entire evening, basically, and messaged James, of course, to tell him that we were with you and make him make him a little jealous, yeah, that we were having all those conversations. So um, was Exa 12 your fo- first, very first experience of making a dance film? Because obviously you've been working with the company for many years, but... Yes and no. We, we've done a couple of, like, we've had people come into the studio before. Right. And we've had the experience of having cameras in the studio for different things, news reports, mm-hmm. small documentaries done for, uh, like, YouTube or a student project. Okay. When Square and Evenod approached us, we had no concept of what they were out to produce. Okay. So it was a big question mark in the beginning. Absolutely. We were approached by a researcher that Mm -hmm. they had acquired that had done research in a very particular way that they really enjoyed. I had a conversation with her. I was in London. She was in San Francisco. And it was one of those things where she starts asking questions and I'm thinking, okay, well, they want to do documentary. We've had this done before. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what this is going to be. And then suddenly they're like, well, we'll still, we're still researching other organizations. We'll get back to you. And then you get that phone call that the director wants to talk to you. And so yeah. Mohammed Gorgistani is an amazing director out of San Francisco. He calls up, uh, he's in San Francisco or in London. And we have a long chat about his vision, what he sees, what he wants to do. And we get the invitation to go to New York and start meeting the team and scoping out different stories that can be presented in the documentary. So was, was, were those conversations, those early conversations, like them pitching to you? Was that the, the kind of format that that happened in? Or was it a discussion about whether the project was right on the inside? So were they sort of, we want to make this, we think you're a, you know, a great sort of organization to, for us to, to kind of produce something that's really uh, valuable. Um, and were they sort of pitching the, the whole project to you? Yes. The, the the way it happened was Square Incorporated was making a series of documentaries about individuals who had set out to solve a problem in society and, mm. and create a solution for something. And in turn, had created this amazing thing that was doing a ton of good. Mm. The film before us was about a, um, a woman who was in prison and when she got out of prison she started no one would hire her give her a job and so she started selling secondhand goods out of a suitcase using square and that grew into a huge what we call thrift store charity shop in the states where she hires ex-cons and teaches them life skills through this charity shop they just opened their second one amazing um, that was square's fourth film in the series and then they had known since the beginning they wanted to do something about the veteran angle, mm -hmm. especially in the United States. And so they knew they wanted that angle, but they also wanted something that was completely different. They wanted to change this conversation. Mo talks a lot about how patriotism has been hijacked in the U.S., particularly for a certain narrative. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make a film that went directly against that narrative. Mm. and said there's different forms of patriotism and there's different ways of serving your country. Absolutely. And so when you say, were they pitching it, at a certain point, they were. They mm -hmm. were like, this is what we want to do with your story. This is the way we want to approach it. And it was a lot of conversations for me personally to buy into because you you've probably sure seen this. That and when people come to you with a vision, you're very skeptical about whether they can realize that vision or not. Right. Yeah. You like don't know them. Is one thing, yeah. But then realizing that vision is completely yeah. different. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about this at dinner, but can you elaborate a little bit about the um, collaboration process that was involved in the creation of the film between you and the director. I mean, we love the conversation in screen dance, director versus choreographer, but obviously you were just speaking on the fact that you just met this director for the first time and he had this really, um, you know, specific vision of what he wanted for the documentary. And obviously you, I'm sure had your own vision of what it could be. So could you just speak a little bit about what that collaboration shaped into and, what you might have learned in the process. It's probably good to position something at the forefront of this. Mm -hmm. I was at a point where with Exit 12, we were struggling to tell our story. And when we would talk about Exit 12, the mission of Exit 12 and what we actually do, there was a disconnect between what we understood and then what the person we were talking to got from that. Right, yeah. So when Mo came to us with his vision... I started to see a way we could start telling our story mm -hmm. in a way that audience members could completely understand the different facets we work through. Yeah. So I was excited. Mm. With that, he had this ambitious vision of telling the story in a way that moved in and out of real dance sequences that we had created. Yeah. To the point where he wanted even to do it, film the dance sequences on 36 millimeter so that the texture felt differently. Yeah. Um, 
the audience felt as they were being transported into someone's mind or vision or into a different world. Yeah. So that these stories that were being told about the veteran experience, about the impact of war, about this organization that was helping veterans and family members was made real on screen. When we started working, I think the biggest things that were different in terms of collaboration is most team hadn't worked with dancers before and we hadn't worked that much with camera before. Yeah. On top of that, we were now bringing in so many stakeholders, uh, the producer, the director, the director's team, the producer's team, as well as Exit 12 assets. Mm -hmm. And then composer, William, um, William Fritch came in as a composer who's an amazing musician, did all of the music, but suddenly we're having to look at pieces that we had choreographed for stage that were 15 minutes or longer having to condense them, look at them through a screen, yep. and condense not only the dance itself, but the subject matter, the music, into something that had a definite time limit. Mm -hmm. And so not only do you have all these stakeholders that are coming in with their ideas, but you're having to finesse all of these ideas into a very specific time frame. Which is the big one of the biggest challenges as a choreographer. Um, and one of our previous episodes, we were speaking on that, like specifically with the choreographer who had to condense an hour show into like a 15 minute film. And the struggle of, you know, what do I keep? What do I cut? It's, I mean, I can only imagine. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, just before we move on with this, there's also something you mentioned a little bit earlier on there that I think is really important about screen dancing. You're talking about the, uh, the delivery method for audiences um, in sort of th this era. Um, I, I, I think that you said the um, you were you were struggling with how to portray exactly what it was that you did to modern audiences, um, and and you were kind of hoping that they would get in what you wanted them to get out of what you were delivering. And I think uh, film is a really great way of uh, of translating um, sort of modern creative concepts in, into something palatable for new audiences because we dissect information through film and, and video content all day and we we're actually getting very good at it. Yeah. Um, whereas I think people aren't as good at dissecting stage performances now as maybe they once were because we're not consuming that as, uh, as often. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a really important thing about putting dance work on film now is, is it's a great way to communicate with new audiences. And when Mo was talking about it, he was also broadening our reach in the way that he was thinking. So in the 12 years of Exit 12, in all of the admin work and all of the admin preparation we've been doing for the company, we've been specifically focusing on a specific audience, our circle of influence. And then who's on that periphery of the circle of influence that we have, you know, starting with the military and then kind of bleeding out into the families, into the people overseas that are affected. And we have a very specific audience. Mm. But when Mo started talking about this documentary, he's like, I want to reach every man. Yeah. He's like, I want to have that documentary that a trucker in middle America is driving for hours and hours and hours taking his lumber to the lumber yard and he stops in at one of those seedy diners on the side <laughs> of the highway and he sits down in front of a burger and a coffee and, and he suddenly he sees on the monitor exit 12 and the film is so good he's captivated by it and has to watch it and mm -hmm. that's how universal he wanted to make the film yeah and I you succeeded, that. Mo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes across really, really um, yeah. And it's and it's the storytelling is so powerful throughout the entire film, which, you know, James and I were discussing this um, earlier. I think what does it the thread throughout the whole documentary is the voiceovers. And it's so artistically done, the transitions between the dance scenes and the interviews and the workshops and the performances. And obviously, I can imagine how important it was for you to show all of those different facets that the company offers and all the work that you do with Exit 12. And I imagine that was a big challenge to get all of those elements into the film. 
But our favorite thing about Exit 12 is those transitions between the dance scenes and just the the human moments, whether you're in the studio rehearsing or just sitting down talking with Lisa or, you know, I think the way that it's all pieced together to tell this story. And I mean, it's it's over 20 minutes long, the documentary. And I, you know, you don't get bored. I've watched it like at least four or five times now from start to finish. And um, you can't turn it off. You want to you want to watch it through every time, right? Yeah. First time I saw it, I was really gutted when it finished. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of wanted it to be like three times as long. <laughs> but it's yeah. and that's so amazing that you feel that way, you know, because I think it is especially now in this day and age of media and digital storytelling and film you know, we're having to make things shorter and shorter because people's memory and not just memory, but their attention span is so short. Yeah, you don't want to watch something for more than five minutes at a time normally because people just get bored or they move on or they're like on to the next and they somehow think that they don't have time to sit down and listen to a story for more than five minutes. So it's it says something pretty incredible about the director and you and everyone involved in that storytelling element of the film that you don't want to switch it off. And you, that you're saying as well that, that now I'm hearing that the goal of the the whole film was that, you know, someone can walk into a, a diner and sit down and watch it and it stops their day and, and they're consumed by it and they want to, um, they want to experience that story, you know, and forget about whatever it was that they were yeah. busy doing. Um, yeah. and, and that speaks exactly. Absolutely. It just makes everyone want to hit pause for a moment. Because at the end of the day, I think what makes the film so special is that it's speaking to, because regardless of whether you have any connection to the military or not, it's speaking to hope and just connection. And I think that is obviously what so many people cling to from from watching this film, because everyone can relate to that, regardless of whether they are a veteran or not, or they whether know a veteran, um, if it's in the family, it's... It's just the, the, that theme that everyone can connect with. So even myself, I don't have any friends in the military. Um, you know, I don't know that story at all. But it's so powerful, the storytelling, and it's so emotional. Like, you know, my eyes were sweating every time I watched this film. <laughs> even when I know what's coming, <laughs> I still have a little bit of glassy-eyed, you know, going on. Because it's natural. It's just like that. those human emotions just, I don't know. I love, I love the storytelling. It's the most powerful thing about the film. When we had started with it, Mo, you know, you, you knew that you had an affinity with someone. When my personal goals for the company were to step out of my own perspective of what war was and to include other voices mm. and to bring in these and to know that my experience stopped at a certain point. And so with Exit 12, very very early on, we started bringing in other choreographers, other voices, other experiences to diversify what we were talking about. So when Mo came in and he had this idea of finding these three strong stories that could create the narrative, Mm -hmm. and these three architects, archetypal stories yeah the the person who wants to help everyone the person like the mother mm-hmm. everyone can relate to a yes mom. and like the the greatest generation figure of this person who didn't serve in the greatest generation but served in a war that is now history that everyone can say oh wow like my grandfather served or my uncle served and like i can relate to this experience on a very small level and then that person can broaden my understanding of it. It was it was completely genius. Oh, absolutely. And I think we spoke a little bit about um, the elements of the film where you actually see the words, the title of that dance phrase or that choreography. Um, and I think one of them was Everett's Peace, and then there's sometimes silence. Is that right? Um, and that's really interesting because I think it's very rare now in screen dance to see titles in the middle of the film, you know, normally you'll see it. Yeah. You normally, you'll see it at the beginning and you get the credits at the end. It's very rare that they would interrupt the images with a title or a thing, a, you know, an announcement like that. Um, and I think it was a really strong choice, but it's really, like you said, change shifting the 
dynamic and like changing it. This is now this, this is something completely separate. And it really works because not only are we trans, like we're transported to now we're watching a dance scene, but like you said, using different film uh, to really make it feel different as well is just amazing. For me as a choreographer, those titles actually bring the audience closer to the stage version mm-hmm. because it's almost like giving the audience a program yeah. as to what's coming next. Right. I was just going to say, it's like, it reminds me of a book. Amari here, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, it reminded me of, of, you know, chapters of a book because even though it felt like, it didn't feel like there was a pause in that moment. It was like, okay, here's a, a, a title of this next paragraph. Of, of this this chapter of this essay you know so yeah it reminded me of that <laughs> so, um, we wanted to ask you briefly about because I obviously as a viewer you can you can sense the emotion in the film and the grief that a lot of people are dealing with um, so how did you safeguard the the mental health of the people working on the film obviously specifically the veterans we see you in the studio with veterans on, in the workshop space can, was there anything that you had to do in the filming process that was specifically just protecting them and trying to look after them? Because obviously, I think in this current society, everyone's a little bit more sensitive to this is actually something we need to make sure is taken care of. It's funny that you bring that up. Uh, just this morning, I was looking at my Facebook memories oh. and my company manager put on Facebook when they released the film this gallery of images that show me sleeping in weird places <laughs> yeah. so like i fell asleep in the elevator and in the truck on the way to one of the filming locations yeah. on the subway we worked so hard um not only filming and choreographing and making artistic decisions and hiring dancers and managing dancers and bringing veterans in the work that we did just speaks to how authentic the film is. Yeah. Because you speak to the veterans' workshops. And I think another powerful moment that speaks to how did we safeguard Mm. is Everett's piece, the filming of Everett's piece. Yeah. Um, In the veterans' workshops, we had a long conversation with the veterans outside of the studio to tell them exactly what we were doing, exactly the aims of this documentary. And the most important thing was, is that we were going to run the veterans workshop exactly like we run it outside of the filming space and that nothing was going to change that. Mm -hmm. And we had a long conversation with Mo about it and the producers to the point where in the veterans workshop, when something started going awry, you didn't see me running around trying to touch base with everyone to make sure that we were still on the same page, nothing was inauthentic, and everybody felt okay with what was going on. Yeah. One of those examples was in the Veterans Workshop, we do this thing called repurposing movement, where we have everyone write down an emotion or, or, or a, something they're feeling, and then we have them create separately a phrase of movement based on their military training or on five words that are violent, hit, kick, punch, and then after they've created that phrase physically, we have them repurpose that to reflect the word that they had written down. And it introduces this concept of we don't necessarily have to be what we were trained to be. Mm-hmm. And also, we are in control of how we come off to other people. And sometimes they don't see us the way we want them to see us. And we're in control of that. And we can change that. Mm-hmm. Well, in the middle of this, during the filming, we're all working, making those movements, and then we transition and everybody's trying to change these movements to be, to reflect love or peace or some other emotion or feeling. And Everett, the, the veteran in the film, just starts walking around, tapping people on the shoulder ever so politely and asks them if he could give them a hug. Wow. And as soon as I saw this going on, I ran straight up to Mo and I was like, did you make him do that? Right. You made him do that. That is so inauthentic. (laughs) And he just calmly looked at me. Mo was so calm during all of my (laughs) He just looked at me and he was like, no, Everett's doing that by himself. Yeah. And that's just Everett. Yeah. It just speaks to how amazingly kind and loving Everett has, has come to be 
and how we just made sure that everybody was okay yeah. in their skin. And they felt safe. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's lovely to hear. I mean, I think the workshop scene where you actually get to see the work that you do with the veterans and, you know, using your art to be that therapy for them and give them an outlet to work through their grief and their trauma and everything else that I imagine they went through um, is definitely one of the more powerful moments because we're actually seeing you in action actively, you know, doing doing the the things you set out to do with your company, um, which I imagine is sort of the, the source of the whole all of the work that you do. Um, So it's amazing to get a little bit of a look into that part as well, you know, because so often when we're making a dance film, it's very, you know, a lot of it is about presenting this polished, uh, dynamic, interesting product. Absolutely. And the fact that you were able to shift it into this, you know, dance documentary that has all these different elements in it, you know, and at parts of it are uncut, parts of it are raw, parts of it are very authentic and real, and then it's sort of like uh, connected to those other more polished, uh, choreographed moments. I think that's what makes it so interesting and what makes the piece so special. And I think it also caused Mo to pull his hair out at points. Yeah. <laughs> he would ask us to do things, and for me... Honesty, integrity, and authenticity were extremely important. And so when they would say, do X, Y, Z, I would have to go into the back of my brain and say, okay, what do I do naturally? Mm-hmm. Or what would I do in this situation being myself that would fit? Rather than doing something choreographed or staged to make Mo happy, I think it says a lot for him letting that authenticity happen yeah and then showcasing that authenticity through the documentary can we yeah so maybe we can transition into uh process choreographer versus director and that relationship and there's a moment that i'd really specifically like to maybe start this conversation off with um it's also in uh everett's piece i think it might even be the very last shot of that when he comes into frame is extreme close just his face and you can see his eyes are watering yeah um how do you go about because that is a manufactured moment in a sense because it's part of a choreographed section of the film absolutely um so that's a, a manufactured process um how do you go about getting that sort of performance from someone who isn't an actor and obviously there's a very deep underlying causality for that moment um, so maybe talk to us a little bit about the dynamic of, of producing those moments as a choreographer working with a director. I think it's important to understand like where Everett's piece came from. Um, when talking to Everett about his inclusion in the film, we were sitting at a coffee shop in New York City, and he was retelling his first experience with repurposing movement, those five violent phrases and just like he did the first time he walked into a dance studio he demonstrated for Mo and the producers and the team bayonet training exercises and completely demonstrated them like he had just been trained them he explained that when he was going through this exercise the word that he'd written down was the word peace and he froze Because, in his words, that's what he had been trying to do his whole life. is transition from this self-proclaimed killer that had been trained how to kill by the army to someone who could be kind and loving and peaceful. Mm. And it was a struggle for him. And so we started envisioning what we called Everett's Peace, P-I-E-C-E, as this way to help him get closer to that realization. As we were moving along, we knew we wanted the bayonet sequences to be a big part of it because especially in the United States Marine Corps, when they're teaching these bayonet sequences in the dock, you can hear the dancers yelling the word kill at the top of their lungs. Well, that's how we were trained. Mm -hmm. That's how the military separates that basic human 
trait of not being able to take another life and deadening it so that that's actually possible. Desensitizing. Yeah. So we're creating this work. We're creating these really hard, real moments that suddenly when we're doing the filming, we're in Fort Totten in New York City. We're surrounded by this militaristic looking concrete structures. We have decommissioned real 7.5 pound M16A1 service rifles from the Vietnam era that we're using. Wow. And suddenly, you know, Everett's in the midst of this. Mm. And for me, again, going back to the safeguarding piece, that means that I'm going to continue to talk into Everett, making sure that he's okay. The fact that he's just talking back to me means that he's still in the moment. He, we're not going anywhere completely crazy. And then you get to the moment. How are we going to finish this? Mm. How are we going to communicate this transition from these military movements to Everett taking one more step towards that lifelong goal of unlearning all of those killing techniques. And so Mo and I, in the moment, had a conversation. He's like, you know, I just, I, I want to do a close-up of Everett, and these, this is, I want to get an emotional response. And so, like, he and I are going to have a conversation on camera, and we're just going to let it naturally happen. And so Mo, in terms of safeguarding, again, kicked everybody out of that little space that it was just Everett and Mo and the camera and a few dancers were off to the side and they put up a couple of screens and Mo and Everett just had a conversation. And wow. that's what came out of the conversation, this pivotal moment where you're realizing that you're realizing all of those things that the military did on a face on screen. Mm -hmm. And you feel that. Absolutely. As a viewer, yeah. like 100%, you feel it. Um, so Exit 12, the company is, you know, obviously known for performing in really unique spaces and places. So we were just wondering, you know, why is site-specific work important to your cause? And is there a reason? Because we see a little bit of that in the film. There's so many different spaces within the film. So why is that a choice that you wanted to make in the shooting of Exit 12, the documentary? I love that you call it a choice. <laughs> okay. I think that's awesome. Um, <laughs> I, you know, going back to my military days, I, I understood that when I was starting the company that we would have to be mobile. Mm. And I had just read Twyla Tharp's autobiography and Mark Morris's old autobiography about, or no, it was Robert Joffrey, sorry, how they started in a, in a Volkswagen. I think you call it something yes, here in the yeah. UK. Um, not a Volkswagen, sorry, a station wagon. Yes. You know, the wood paneled car. Mm -hmm. And they would pile all the props and costumes on top of the car, all the dancers into the car, and they would be able to drive from tour location to tour location. Um, and so we were the same when we started. And Often, we didn't know what the performance location would be when we got to the place. Right. Our first tour was to Eastern Kentucky University in Kentucky. And we went for a military arts symposium. And we were the featured performance for the symposium. And the stage was an outdoor concrete venue. No, <laughs> And that was the first time the dancers coined the phrase Exit 12, always an adventure. Oh, is that where the name comes from then? Well, not the name Exit 12, but <laughs> kind of the tagline, always an adventure, because we never yeah. knew what was on the other end. We, right. And we're getting better at that, planning-wise. Um, my company manager is forcing me to get better at that. <laughs> but I think having this ability to go to a location and perform no matter what was there mm -hmm. offered us an ability to be flexible to perform in spaces that you wouldn't normally see a dance company thereby reaching audiences that dance normally wouldn't speak to yeah 
And I think one of the best examples of that is the USS Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York Harbor. We started petitioning them in 2011 because I visited the Intrepid and it was before they had the space shuttle on the back of the ship. And I looked off the stern of the ship at New Jersey and just saw the sun going down and I thought, this would be an incredible location for a dance performance. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we started performing there during Memorial Day when we partnered with an organization called Performing Arts Consultants. And they brought us on the ship, and now they do a whole dance offering during the Memorial Day celebration and Fleet Week celebration in New York City. But it was always these small little performances on the deck in the middle of the day, boiling hot in May. Yeah. And, again, we're just reaching the everyday person that comes onto the ship to kind of experience it during Memorial Day weekend. When Mo started talking about where he wanted the documentary to go, he wanted the whole documentary to feel like there was this underlying thread of getting ready for a final performance. Okay. And when he had seen our work on The Intrepid, he thought that would be a perfect backdrop. And so because of this documentary, we got to realize that dream that we started in 2011 of performing on the deck of the USS Intrepid, steel deck, mm -hmm. laid down dance floor oh my goodness. <laughs> with all of our supporters and audience as the sun is going down in New York City. And it, it was absolutely spectacular. It must have been. I mean, it looks spectacular, so I can imagine knowing that it was a longtime dream for you and the company, it must have been a really magical night. I mean... The Intrepid likes to call itself a weapon of war transitioned into a tool for education. And to tag on to that, we believe that Exit 12 and Apart has also transformed it into this vehicle for art. Mm. And it's really surreal going into the hangar decks into the holds, into the command center, and turning them into dressing rooms and photography places and places that the dancers are going to get ready and a reception and then a stage. Yeah. And it's a pretty special, it was a pretty special thing to be a part of. Amazing. So obviously you have a lot of experience with the company performing in these really unusual uh, places. Did you find there needed to be a shift or was there a change that happened when you were then choreographing specifically for the film in these, you know, unique outdoor site specific locations? Or was it very much the same routine for you in terms of creating something that we see as an audience? I think the only difference between choreographing for film in specific locations and performing in these site-specific locations is that you have a specific time frame to work in. Okay. So we don't have a whole day to do tech and spacing and blocking. Suddenly we have, okay, you have 15 minutes to walk through this and then we need to sh start shooting. Yeah. And yeah, we only, <laughs> and especially for the dance sequences, you had a specific amount of film that you could use. Yeah. And so there was suddenly this finality to it that we were always working up against. That being said, collaboration is such a wonderful thing that pulled us through this. The ability to be there with the director, the ability to have the dancers kind of give their input and the, you know, the choreographers and me as a choreographer all working together to get exactly what he wanted mm -hmm. on film just by saying, okay, well, maybe we'll do this, well, maybe we'll do this, we'll try it a couple of times and see if it works. And everybody was so open to that collaborative spirit that it made it easier than it could have been. Fabulous. <laughs> so, um, speaking to your journey specifically, because obviously that's what attracted the um, company to your story because they wanted to tell the world about you and the work that you're doing. Um, I imagine you were a quite a unique soldier 
I don't know. I mean, there can't be <laughs> many. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are others like you, Roman, but someone who was originally a professional dancer, (laughs) I mean, you know, a professional dancer before they joined the military. So, I mean, can you just speak what that was like? I I, I saw an interview of you talking about sharing that element of your history with your uh, superior in in the military. So I guess my main question comes down to, did your history and your discipline of your dance training in any way shape or form like help and assist that journey of going to base camp and going through that base training as as a member of the military um i think boot camp is the most profound examples of that overlap between the military and dance in that when i started boot camp i was in great physical shape as dancing And so there was a small transition to learn the different exercises that they did, but it wasn't a large one. And then I had just gotten out of a school where most of my instructors were old Russian dancers and teachers. (laughs) And so them yelling at me and kind of belittling me in the dance studio was no different than three (laughs) drill instructors yelling at me and belittling me in a squad bay. Right. I think... You know, I walked in with these aspirations that I would be a dancer and then transition to a Marine and everybody would be okay with that. And I was in boot camp and I would kind of go through choreography in my head on those days that, like, we didn't have that much to do. I never danced in the squad bay. I knew better. (laughs) But I got a photo album from a loved one and it had a lot of my dancing photos in it. And three guys in my platoon caught a glance at the photo album and two of them thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And one of them never talked to me again. Wow. And so I had this conflicted feeling about telling people about it. Mm -hmm. And so I shared it with my senior drill instructor, who's like the dad figure of boot camp. Yeah. Because I felt it was important to let him know that he had transformed this dancer, this ballet dancer, into a Marine. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt it would give him a weird sort of motivation and pride, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that worked, but anyway. <laughs> and then after that, I kept it under wraps for most of my Marine Corps career. And mm-hmm. I would tell people things that were kind of true, because as a dancer, I had to work odd jobs in order to sustain my artistic Of practice. course, yeah. And so I t- would tell people that I worked for an engineering company, which was true because I leveraged some of my Uh, high school drafting experience to work with an engineering company but I would rarely tell the other guys in my unit that I was a dancer Mm -hmm. until Fallujah and then in Fallujah you're suddenly living with these people day in and day out you're spending every single minute with them and the boredom on top of it is completely draining to where you run out of things to talk about. And so I had started sparking off a conversation with one of our Iraqi interpreters about dance in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And he brought me tons of like videos to watch and some popular music videos. And, and then we started talking about the difference and he was a break dancer too, because break dancing was big in Iraq at the time. And then some of my other guys, I started kind of go, okay, yeah, I used to do, like, Broadway shows because I thought that was a good entry point. Yeah. And then, okay, well, I used to do, like, stage stuff and theater. And then a couple of my best friends in the core, I was like, yeah, I used to be a dancer. And I started Mm. talking to them about this production that I would do when I returned home, telling people about the military experience and what people might not know because they had not served. Right. And my best friend, um, Joe, we were roommates in Fallujah and often spent a lot of time together. Actually, he just texted me like this photo last night. He's going through some of photos at home because he's clearing out stuff. And he's like, check it out. It was you and I serving together in the bunker in Iraq. And I was like, what are you doing? Are you just feeling nostalgic? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But he was like you know, this sounds like a great thing. And he brought a pad of paper to our next duty assignment and said, let's start writing this down. Wow. And 
that went so far as to when we premiered our first military-themed work in New York City, he would drive down from Connecticut and perform with us. It's amazing that you found someone that was that supportive, too. And I imagine it's because you had that intimate connection already. There, you know, It's hard to imagine that if you're already that close and you've already been through that together, it's hard to picture someone then not being able to understand a different part of you. So That's the way I felt until yeah. about a month ago. Wow, really? Um, so a month ago, um, Military Times, it's this military magazine in, in the States, did a, an article on the company because, yeah. of, because of the documentary. Yeah. And as it would play out, they put the story on all of their Facebook platforms. So okay. Air Force Times, Marine Corps Times, Navy Times, and Army Times. And in the Marine Corps Times specifically, suddenly you just see the diverse voices in America yeah. kind of commenting on the article of, yeah. you know, oh my God, he was in the military, you know, oh my goodness, he should have been in the Navy, and all these kind of... Um, opinions. Disparaging opinions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was interesting is that a lot of my guys jumped to the forefront of that conversation, and they were like, you know, we were embarrassed that he couldn't tell us, because that was a part of who he was. We were totally fine with it, and he should have. And then... Reading that, from my perspective, I was embarrassed that I didn't trust them enough to share with them who I really was. Yeah. Because they cared. And yeah. I tell people, hands down, that I was completely lucky to go to Fallujah with the guys that I went to Fallujah with. Mm -hmm. They were the reason we stayed safe. They were the reason I felt that we did good in the area. And I look up to each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. And they continuously prove it like the Facebook comments amazing um so I guess speaking more to your transition once you came back um from Iraq we we see a little bit of this in the film where you talk about in one of the interviews or in one of the voiceovers about that converse that very frank conversation you had with Lisa about what you needed to do to just be happier in your life and um the big question was obviously what inspired you to then bring movement back to your military community, your military family. You obviously still had that artistic uh, expression inside that you wanted to make a dance company. But obviously, I appreciate it took a little bit of time to then realize you wanted to take it a step further and actually bring dance to veterans. So what did that look like as a journey and, and having that realization, not just that I want to perform and I want to dance with other dancers, but I actually want to use this form of expression. I want to use dance to, you know, help veterans. This company has been intertwined throughout Lisa's and I's life and my life since we started in mm -hmm. weird and really, really profound ways. We started the company as a way to communicate the military experience to audiences through performance. Mm -hmm. And there's the ups and downs of creating an organization that does that, understandably. Yeah. After we had been doing it for about five years, one of my platoon mates that I served with in Fallujah took his own life. And I remember getting the phone call from Joe and him saying that we were going to have a reunion and the reunion was going to be at his memorial service. It's a tradition for Marines to stand guard over the casket of, of a fallen Marine. Mm -hmm. And so we were organizing a detail to do just that for the time that he was, uh, the time before his memorial service and then after his memorial service. And that experience rocked me to my bone because alongside the journey of Exo 12, I had been doing other things to affect the veteran cause. Creating fundraisers, doing mm. um, like collections to send care packages overseas to the troops, etc. Yeah. And I knew I was doing something positive, but it didn't feel like I was making a large impact. <clears throat> so when this happened, I 
started to think about how I could have a larger impact. And I had gotten associated with this organization out of the States called The Mission Continues, which was a veterans organization that helped veterans get positions at nonprofits to help their own goals. Right. And so I found this company called Battery Dance Company. I got the fellowship. Um, Battery Dance Company trained me in this thing they called Dancing to Connect, which brings divergent populations together through dance to start working together, create conversations. And then in what was a storybook-like event, sent me back to Iraq to do a dance workshop with Iraqi youth. Mm. And when I was working with these young people and seeing the power of movement and how it could transform the way they thought, the way they communicated, the way they developed a community, I thought that we could start doing this type of workshop with veterans Mm -hmm. aimed at specific goals. So... In the early days, there was a lot of talk around veterans getting more, getting jobs and yeah. furthering their education and doing more community service to parallel what they had done in the military so that they could come back better. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I developed the workshop to do is like, we can do this to, to get veterans to think about their own identity and, and create some sort of self-affirmation. And then this segment will get them to thinking about how they're communicating at the workplace and they can develop their communication style and mm-hmm. there were all these little tiny steps of like what that workshop was designed to do like sort yeah. of reintegration aspect but the most powerful thing about that is after doing the workshop for five years and looking at it not only through the experience of doing it but now looking at it on the theoretical side as well mm-hmm. what i started to realize was Sure, we were helping veterans develop more of a self-identity. Yeah, we were probably getting them to think about the way they were outwardly exhibiting how who they were a little bit. But the most amazing thing that was happening out of each and every workshop is we were inspiring imagination. And I tell everyone that the best outcome of one of our workshops is when a veteran walks in very anxious about what they're going to do. They're yeah. going to dance. They're going to move. They're going to create. And they walk out and saying, I, I just did that. I wonder what else I can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they go and they embark on something instrumental in their own life. And that's the best outcome. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything else specifically about the, the film that you wanted to ask, James? Um, I mean, I, I work more on the, the film side of things, um, so I'm, I'm always more curious about the, the, the technical, technical aspects. <laughs> um, you were shooting mixed formats, is that right? So you were shooting uh, film and digital? Absolutely. Multiple formats of film? Do you know? No, they just had one... 16mm, was it? Was it 16mm? Kodak donated all of the film for the... Wow. (laughs) We had one format. Right. And we had a specific amount that we had to use. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's really beautiful. Anyway, the the way it came off, I did uh, go and do a, some uh, go and do some snooping on the production company, and, uh, and uh, I do follow now the cinematographer. So I'm keeping up to date with all of their work. Yeah, it, it, it was really beautiful. Um, Is that Logan? Yeah. Yeah, Logan's incredible. Yeah. Just a, a such. I think everybody working on that film was such a visionary mm. and also went above and beyond what I expected as a choreographer. Um, I mean, it, from Logan's work to the work of William, the composer, the, the times I could just call William up, get on the phone and be like, I just got your latest working of this piece. Can we try this instead? And he'd be like, yeah, let's do it. I'll have a new thing for you at the end of the week. Wow. And it was absolutely unheard of for these people to go to these lengths mm. to create. Was there much conversation like that um, throughout the process in terms of the look of the film? Were you, were you involved in those conversations? Or was that very much with the director and the cinematographer? 
Um, it was it, it was interesting because as much as I wanted to be a part of that process, I also wanted to respect their room mm. as creators. But every time I tried to step out of that process, somebody would push me back in and be like, you need to look at this and you need to have a say in how this is coming about. And yeah. I got to tell you, I just completely respect Mo's vision. Every time I looked at the little screen that they were tracking the cam, the steady cam with, I was flabbergasted with just how good it was and how how polished of an of an eye he had mm -hmm. and what he was looking for. Mm. And there were moments where you know, the usual dancer critiques come in of like, okay, well you can't shoot that because you're getting this angle and that's not a really good angle, but um, there weren't many of those moments. More of the moments around, you know, what do we want this to look like and what will the finished product look like were so much more fun. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite shots is the continuous shot of Angela in the house. The mother. Oh, that's mother. our favorite. We love that. Where the steady cam started, you know, at her face, and, they, yeah. and the steady cam goes and just keeps on going through the pictures. Finds the TV. Finds mm. the TV. Screen within a screen. <laughs> the lengths they went to find a DVD player for that time. Oh my god. Anyway. Um, and then comes through the door and then transitions seamless, almost seamlessly into, into the dance. Yeah. Um, Mo will tell you that they advocated hard to keep that shot in because nobody wanted it. Really? And they said it wouldn't be well received. And Oh no, it's the best the, shot. The, the, just... Everybody I've talked to about that shot and and mentioned that shot to is like, oh my god, I just love that. Like, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> I agree. I absolutely agree. It's just it's, a shot that grabs you and pulls yeah, you along. Yeah, I think it's the power of the voiceover at that moment as well. The, the introduction to her character and what what her story is going to be throughout that scene is so powerful with that long shot to just see her in her environment and really have a, an intimate introduction to her and then to transition so seamlessly into the um, uh, the abstract version of her character mm -hmm. is just yeah it, it's it really beautiful it's also a really good example of those unexplicable surprising moments that you expect to be there in some sort of part of your subconscious but when they're there you're like oh my god and it rips your heart out like mm -hmm. when you start at her and you kind of go around and you see all the photos and you hear like she's watching television but then you look at the television and it's the birth of one of those boys yeah and you're like it just it kills you yeah, yeah. and then it yeah it just speaks to the power of of what he was able to to do yeah yeah um well I mean, we could talk about Exit 12 for such a long time because we we really do love the film. We all do. Um, but please tell us about how we can follow your work and stay in touch. Is there anything coming up that you can tell us about? Uh, Exit12danceco.org is our website. Um, the film is called Exit 12 Moved by War. Okay. It's free on Vimeo. Uh, it was just selected as a Vimeo staff pick of the year, 2019. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> we have a ton of stuff coming up. We are going to the States. We have a couple of presentations around New York City and Washington, D.C. And then one of the things we're building up to is in May, over the span of Memorial Day, we are going back to the place I was born. Wow. Um, I was raised in New Mexico, in mm -hmm. Albuquerque, in the States. And even though I've been doing this work for 12 years, New Mexico has never seen it. We've never had the opportunity to tour. To go there. And so we have a couple really good partners that we're working with. And um, the National Dance Institute, which is this forward-thinking organization that brings dance to young people in a, in a captivating and transformative way. And the New Mexico Arts Council is helping us, and a fund called the Daddy Appleseed Fund, which is uh, all about getting dads more engaged and in, into in, fatherhood. Mm -hmm. um, all things we're passionate about. Yeah. And they're allowing us to take a nice big chunk of our work to New Mexico, so that you know 
This is my so mom exciting. can come out and sit in the yeah. audience. Yes. Yeah. Where you started. That's where I started dancing. Yeah. And hopefully all of my dance teachers will be there too. That's, <laughs> that'll be really special. So um, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Um, and just wishing you all the best and all of the exciting things that you've got coming up next. And we will definitely be following you. So I'm just amazed you guys saw the film. Like, <laughs> as soon as we had that dinner, I texted Mo and I was like, you would never believe what just happened. <laughs> and Mo was like, yeah. that's great. Like yeah. all the way here in London. So I can't thank you guys for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming down. Uh, Roman, you've inspired us. I'm telling you, like we want to make work like this and it's very hard. Like Anna said to make work that, um, hits those marks when it comes to uh, uh, um, uh, the production values and the things that we all kind of want to reach, but also holds on to that authenticity. So, you know, it's it's so inspiring, and I hope that people who continue to make screen arts now can see through Exit 12 an example of how to hold on to that truth, the authenticity, and the other, you mentioned three lovely words before. What was it? Authenticity. Honesty. And integrity. So, you know, let's keep making work that does those three things. Yeah. Yes, this is the NBC Talks. <laughs>